Chapter Four, Part Two of Letters on an Elk Hunt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lynn Carroll. Letters on an Elk Hunt by Eleanor Pruitt Stewart. Chapter Four, Part Two. In the purple and amber light of a new day, we were about, and soon were on the road. By nightfall, we had bidden the desert a glad farewell, and had camped on a large stream among trees. How glad we were to see so much water in such big cottonwoods! Mr. and Mrs. Burney were within a day's drive of home, so they left us. This camp is at New Fork, and our party has four new members a doctor, a moving picture man, and two geological fellows. They have gone on, but we will join them soon. Just across the creek from us is the cabin of a new settler. Mrs. O'Shaughnessy and I slept together last night, only we couldn't sleep for the continual whining cry of a sick baby at the cabin. So after a while we rose and dressed and crossed over to see if we could be of any help we found a woefully distressed young couple. Their first child, about a year old, was very sick. They didn't know what to do for it, and she was afraid to stay alone while he went for help. They were powerfully glad to see us, and the young father left at once to get Grandma Mortimer, a neighborhood godsend such as most western communities have one of. We busied ourselves relieving the young mother as much as we could. She wouldn't leave the baby and lie down. The child is teething and had convulsions. We put it into a hot bath and held the convulsions in check until Mrs. Mortimer came. She bustled in and took hold in a way to ensure confidence. She had not been there long before she had both parents in bed, saving themselves for tomorrow and was gently rubbing the hot little body of the baby. She kept giving it warm tea she had made of herbs, until soon the threatening jerks were over, the peevish whining ceased, and the child slept peacefully on Grandma's lap. I watched her, fascinated. There was never a bit of faltering, no indecision. Everything she did seemed exactly what she ought to do. How did you learn it all? I asked her. How can you know just what to do and then have the courage to do it? I should be afraid of doing the wrong thing. Why, she said, that is easy. Just do the very best you can and trust God for the rest. After all, it is God who saves the baby, not us and not our efforts. But we can help. He lets us do that. Lots of times the good we do goes beyond any medicine. Never be afraid to help your best. I have been doing that for forty years, and I am going to keep it up till I die. Then she told us story after story, told us how her different ambitions had boosted her along, had made her swim when she just wanted to float. I was married when I was sixteen, and, of course, my first ambition was to own a home for Dave. My man was poor. He had a horse, and his folks gave him another. My father gave me a heifer, and mother fitted me out with a bed. That was counted a pretty good start then. 
but we would have married even if we hadn't had one thing. Being young, we were overhopeful. We both took to work like a duck to water. Some years it looked as if we were going to see every dream come true. Another time, and we would be poorer than at first. One year the hail destroyed everything. Another time the flood carried away all we had. When little Dave was eleven years old, he had learned to plow. Every one of us was working to our limit that year. I plowed and hoed, both, and Big Dave really hardly took time to sleep. You see, his idea was that we must do better by our children than we had been done by, and Fanny, our eldest, was thirteen. Big Dave thought all girls married at sixteen because his mother did, and so did I. So that spring, he said, in just three years Fanny will be leaving us, and we must do right by her. I wanted powerfully bad that you should have a blue silk wedding dress, mother, but of course it couldn't be had, and you looked as pretty as a rose in your pink lawn, but I've always wanted you to have a blue silk. As you can't have it, let us get it for Fanny, and of course we must have everything else according, and so we worked mighty hard. Little Dave begged to be allowed to plow. Every other boy in the neighborhood did, some of them younger than he. But somehow I didn't want him to. One of our neighbors had been sick a lot that year, and his crops were about ruined. It was laying by time, and we had finished laying by our crops, all but about half a day's plowing in the corn. That morning at breakfast, Big Dave said he would take the horses and go over to Henry Bowles's and plow that day to help out. Said he could finish ours any time, and it didn't matter much if it didn't get plowed. He told the children to lay off that day and go fishing and burying. So he went to harness his team, and little Dave went to help him. Fanny and I went to milk, and all the time I could hear little Dave begging his father to let him finish the plowing. His father said he could if I said so. I will never forget his eager little face as he began on me. He had a heap of freckles. I remember noticing them that morning. He was barefooted, and I remember that one toe was skinned. Big Dave was lighting his pipe, and till today I remember how he looked as he held the match to his pipe, drew a puff of smoke, and said, Say yes, mother. So I said yes, and little Dave ran to open the gate for his father. As Big Dave rode through the gate, our boy caught him by the leg and said, I just love you, Daddy. Big Dave bent down and kissed him and said, You're a man, son. How proud that made the little fellow. Parents should praise their children more. The little things work hard for a few words of praise, and many of them never get their pay. Well, the little fellow would have no help to harness his mule. So Fanny and I went to the house, and Fanny said, We ought to cook an extra good dinner to celebrate Davy's first plowing. I'll go down in the pasture and gather some blackberries if you will make a cobbler. She was gone all morning. About ten o'clock, I took a pail of fresh water down to the field. I knew Davy would be thirsty, and I was uneasy about him, but he was all right. 
he pushed his ragged old hat back and wiped the sweat from his brow just as his father would have done i petted him a little but he was so mannish he didn't want me to pet him any more after he drank he took up his lines again and said just watch me mother see how i can plow i told him that we were going to have chicken and dumplings for dinner and that he must sit in his father's place and help us to bury cobbler as he had only a few more rows to plow i went back telling myself how foolish i had been to be afraid twelve o'clock came but not davy i sent fanny to the spring for the buttermilk and waited a while thinking little dave had not finished as soon as he had expected i went to the field little dave lay on his face in the furrow i gathered him up in my arms he was yet alive he put one weak little arm around my neck and said oh mammy i'm hurt the mule kicked me in the stomach i don't know how i got to the house with him i stumbled over clods and weeds through the hot sunshine i sank down on the porch in the shade with the precious little form clasped tightly to me he smiled and tried to speak but the blood gurgled up into his throat and my little boy was gone i would have died of grief if i hadn't had to work so hard big dave got too warm at work that day and when fanny went for him and told him about little dave he ran all the way home he was crazy with grief and forgot the horses the trouble and the heat and the overwork brought on a fever i had no time for tears for three months and by that time my heart was hardened against my maker i got deeper in the rut of work but i had given up my ambition for a home of my own all i wanted to do was to work so hard that i could not think of the little grave on which the leaves were falling i wanted too to save enough money to mark the precious spot and then i wanted to leave but first one thing and then another took every dollar we made for three years one morning big dave looked so worn out and pale that i said i'm going to get out of here i am not going to stay here and bury you dave sunrise tomorrow will see us on the road west we have worked for eighteen years as hard as we know how and have given up my boy besides and now we can't even afford to mark his grave decently it is time we left big dave went back to bed and i went out and sold what we had it was so little that it didn't take long to sell it that was years ago we came west the country was really wild then there was a great deal of lawlessness we didn't get settled down for several years we hired to a man who had a contract to put up hay for the government and we worked for him for a long time indians were thick as fleas on a dog then some were camped near us once and among them was a mexican woman who could jabber a little english once when i was feeling particularly resentful and sorrowful i told her about my little dave and it was her jabbered words that showed me the way to peace i wept for hours but peace had come and has stayed ambition came again but a different kind I wanted the same peace to come to all hearts that came so late to mine, and I wanted to help bring it. I took the only course I knew. I have gone to others' help every time there has been a chance. After Fanny married and Dave died, 
i had an ambition to save up four hundred dollars with which to buy an entrance into an old lady's home just before i got the full amount saved up i found that young eddie carwell wanted to enter the ministry and needed help to go to college i had just enough so i gave it to him another time i had almost enough when charlie rucker got into trouble over some mortgage business so i used what i had that time to help him now i've given up the old lady's home idea and am saving up for the blue silk dress dave would have liked me to have i guess i'll die some day and i want it to be buried in i like to think i'm going to my two daves then and it won't be hard especially if i have the blue silk on just then a sleepy little bird twittered outside and the baby stirred a little the first faint light of dawn was just creeping up the valley i rose and said i must get back to camp mrs o'shaughnessy and i had both wept with mrs mortimer over little dave we have all given up our first-born little man-child so we felt near each other we told mrs mortimer that we had passed under the rod also I kissed her toil-worn old hands, and Mrs. O'Shaughnessy dropped a kiss on her old gray head as we passed out into the rose-and-gold morning. We felt that we were leaving a sanctified presence, and we are both of us better and humbler women because we met a woman who has buried her sorrow beneath faith and endeavor. This doesn't seem much like a letter, does it? When I started on this trip, I resolved that you should have just as much of the trip as I could give you. I didn't know we would be so long getting to the hunting ground, and I felt you would like to know of the people we met. Perhaps my next letter will not be so tame. The hunting season opens tomorrow, but we are several days' travel from the elk yet. Elizabeth behaves queerly. She doesn't want to go on, stay here, or go back. I am perfectly mystified. So far she has not told us a thing, and we don't know to whom she is going or anything about it. She is a likable little lady, and I sincerely hope she knows what she is doing. It is bedtime, and I must stop writing. We go on tomorrow. With affectionate regards, Eleanor Rupert Stewart. End of chapter 4, part 2